welcome to episode 242 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Energy. Energy is a big deal. And today we're speaking with two folks who have the inside track. I want to thank Livestream for being a constant supporter of CXO Talk. And if you go to Livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they will give you a discount on their plans. And I especially want to thank Singularity University for underwriting this episode of CXO Talk. Singularity talks and studies and teaches about exponential technologies. And Singularity's faculty was involved creating the questions, the discussion agenda that we have for today's show. So our guests today are Pete Saronis, who is the former chief technology officer of the Department of Energy, and today he runs a very interesting consulting firm, and David Bray, who has been a guest on the show a number of times in the past, and, and David is co-hosting today with me. And so without further ado, Pete Saronis, how are you? And thank you so much for being here on CXO Talk. Well, well, thank you, Michael, and it's awesome to see David, my colleague and friend. Um, this is an honor, and I'm excited uh, on a couple of fronts. One, to talk about a passion and to, um, frankly, leverage a lot of that time I spent in government, not just working for Uncle Sam, but really becoming part of the energy sector and its role, not just in our country, but globally. And so very briefly, uh, when you say you're part of the energy sector, what do you do exactly? Right. So I um, left government after 25 years. Um, as you mentioned, I had the fortune of being the chief technology officer at the Department of Energy, which plays a significant role in governing that sector. It's one of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors that our country defines, but arguably are sectors that are relative to other nations. But I'm today, almost two years out now, translating or taking that passion into the private sector and working with businesses and organizations affiliated, not just with the energy sector, but, but the other 15, and how does technology analytics drive that innovation necessary to modernize, in this case, um, energy entities, the infrastructure behind the power grids, and how globally we can move to a uh, art of the possible state that we need because of sustainability matters. Well, that's pretty interesting, and we're certainly going to dive down into these topics. You know, and before I introduce David Bray, I have to say, it's all systems go here at CXO Talk Central, CXO Talk HQ, which is somewhat amazing because we've had these internet problems. And right now we're streaming the show mostly through my mobile phone. I have gigabit ethernet, you know, gigabit internet connection. And it's sort of, the packets are sort of dribbling out mostly through my mobile phone and in this day and age, but at least we we're streaming to two different places and... It seems to be working. David Bray, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thanks for having me, Michael, and great to join uh, Pete. And I think it's fascinating because you mentioned your mobile phone is essentially hosting this show. And we know we're about 10 years after the, uh, the advent of the iPhone. Uh, it was three years ago that actually the estimate was 2.3 billion mobile broadband connections on the planet. And that number is supposed to double about every two years. And so... I guess your show is now living proof that one can actually do everything on a mobile device uh, that was only possible on a desktop 10 years ago. Well, it is pretty extraordinary that you can stream a show like this uh, mostly through, the, I say mostly through the phone because we've got multiple 
connections, you know, none of which are sort of working completely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, talking about critical infrastructure, we could dive, and that actually is to me the fascinating about the topic of today and energy, and I want to hear Pete's views. I mean, all these things with the internet of everything, artificial intelligence, autonomous cars, if we don't have them working and if they don't have power, um, it doesn't really matter. And so in some respects, if you think about like Maslow's hierarchy, if we don't have power um, and energy, then it, you know, nothing's going to go. So I'll be interested in Pete's thoughts about critical infrastructure, both the here, but even more importantly, the exponential future ahead. Well, that seems like a, a great introduction, uh, Pete. So what about critical infrastructure and our exponential future, exponential energy? Please share your thoughts on this. No, thank you. Thank you. And I have to put a plug in there. Uh, just not to be biased towards the energy sector, but it being one of the 16. And I, I would ask if, if we, well, we will use some terms that I think need to become part of the lexicon, both in the technology space, but also in the consumer space. When we talk about critical infrastructure, it's pretty basic. It's these are the things, these are our roads, these are our cars, these are our, the food we eat, the, the wastewater treatment plants, the energy that we consume every day. And as a consumer and as a federal employee and now on the industry side, I think it's a topic that we can relate to the consumer as we move to this term called smart infrastructure or the digitalization of the internet that's impacting our lives. David commented a bit on that. We make jokes about how we've got patchwork quilts, even though there's all this technology out there. The energy sector powers the other 15. And if you think about if there's no power, we joke in this town with Snowmageddon and we have these blizzards in Washington, D.C. that shut the city down. The joke sort of wanes after three or four days when we don't have water, we don't have electricity and we get frustrated. And that's where I think the reality of how critical the infrastructure, roads, planes, cars, food, uh, dams, uh, the communications themselves uh, become apparent to not just governments and not just industry and owners and operators of, but the consumer. And my, my, my point there as we talk today, I think critical infrastructure, yes, should and will be a theme. How technology is impacting that is the exciting part. Again, the art of the possible, where are we going with interconnected devices? David mentioned this, billions of connectivity or devices that will be connected, the industrial internet of things, the internet of things. I think people get it, but how you integrate that and in the case of energy, how we start to integrate renewables, store energy, those are matters that bring in the policy regulatory um, matters that are significant, uh, but they need to be happening. And those conversations, I feel, in a concurrent stream to not stifle the innovation of where we need to get to. David, uh, Pete just raised about, uh, you know, a year of discussion and so in this, and I think we, we also need to overlay uh, public policy. So we have technology, we have exponential technologies, we have consumption and demand, we have critical infrastructure, and then we have public policy as well. So how do we start to sort through these things, David? So you're absolutely right. I mean, we could obviously have a year-long CXO talk, and, and that would be, uh, I brought my sleeping bag, I don't know about you, but uh, uh, it would be interesting to roast some marshmallows and have the discussions. But trying to pack into the next 30 minutes, I think we need to think about, one, what are these issues that are both opportunities that are currently not being focused on either by industry, because industry is focusing on linear change, not exponential change, or by the public sector? 
Um, I'm putting on my hat right now and the role that I'm here today and is as a executive in residence at Harvard, where I focus on leadership in the network world, I think we still think about the world as being nation states. We still think about the world as being existing legacy institutions, and we miss that network effect. And so what Pete mentioned was what happens when things start getting more interconnected, they start getting smart. Um, one of the questions that is, I think that would be worth asking if I was to put out one and then a second one, the first one would be, as things become more interconnected, do they become more resilient or do they become more vulnerable to disruption, whether from nature or from, say, cyber attacks and things such as that? So that would be the first question I would toss out to Pete. And then the second question I would say is, 10 years from now, you know, we talked about how the iPhone happened 10 years ago and nobody could have predicted the amount of impact that it has. But let's now fast forward to the year of 2027. So Pete, in your view, what are going to be those technologies that we are not currently focusing on that in 10 years we couldn't possibly imagine the implications that they now have 10 years later? Great. No, I appreciate that tee up. And um, just to comment, um, before I go there, obviously there's there are things that we will touch and feel. I think personally, the autonomous vehicle is the most relevant thing that is cool, is scary, is exciting, presents an opportunity, uh, because why? It's going to be something that we will, hopefully, at least I will, allow us um, or to use. And at the same time, it's transportation. But what's happening with the LIDAR that's going to be on top of the car and the collection of big data and analytics and making decisions is where in the weeds, what I like to call the ping, the power, the pipe, the plumbing of what's happening behind the walls, in the airways, in the frequencies, in the radio bands, where I think to your point, David, the opportunity and the vulnerability, that tension exists. And I, I think that in 10 years, uh, we will have a much more mature uh, infrastructure, that ping power pipe, that's needed so that all these applications that, were, that are advancing much faster than the infrastructure behind the walls uh, will catch up. And for me, the, in the energy sector, or at least in the energy sector, uh, we're talking about synchrophasers and microgrids, distributed energy generation. How do you ingest or connect the renewable fuels that could be your car, your home, a solar panel on your roof, for example, in addition to just substations that are leveraging these new technologies? And, and that all has to happen. Now, it's happening today. I can, uh, as a testament to my, the backdrop of my time at the Department of Energy, the National Laboratory Infrastructure, which are national laboratories, not just energy laboratories, and the international com com community, excuse me, working on this integration, which will afford the opportunity. Let's not lose sight of the fact, and again, I wanna, I wanna go back to David's point, and for those listening, the Internet of Things, which is something I think most of us can relate to. It's our smartphones. It's being connected all the time, anytime, having access to information. The beauty of the future is machine learning, artificial intelligence, the latest buzzwords in the technology communities will allow us as consumers, as business owners, as operators of this new generation or next generation infrastructure, as a federal government and international community to advance the innovation necessary because today the power grid in our country is a century old. And whether you want to throw terms like SCADA, industrial control systems, and so forth, that power, that ping, that infrastructure, those pipes, they work. You flip a switch on, you want the light or the heat to turn on. But when it doesn't, where do you turn? And in the future, 
hopefully you will have information in a more predictive manner, weather changes, what could happen if the storm's coming. So I, I believe there's an opportunity in 10 years. Yes, we'll probably be driving in autonomous vehicles. We probably will have smart meters. We will enjoy using our smart device, not so much a phone anymore, to control things. We see commercials today about, hey, I forgot to turn my AC off when I went away for a month. Close my windows. The beauty and the application of the touch and feel of these uh, innovations, I think we have most of those today. It's, again, the infrastructure, microgrids, smart, uh, secure infrastructure from the standpoint of um, new substations, leveraging drones to protect the physical uh, capabilities. But 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 just to, in summary, I think that how we learn to store energy to deal with the supply-demand matters, which we all know in the energy sector, we use it, we consume it the minute it's available. Fossil fuels have been that power for us for years. Renewable fuels, alternative energy has nothing to do with, with what side of the fence you're on. They are going to be integrated, and it just enhances the complexity of the grid of the city. Uh, this issue of supply and demand seems to be a fundamental driver, especially if we look at alternative energy. Uh, and we also have a question from Twitter relating to this from Gus Bekdash, who makes the comment, uh, much innovation outside the energy sector, sector was motivated by expensive energy. And so can cheap energy reduce innovation in other sectors. So supply and demand has this impact both directly on energy as well as innovation across sectors, including outside of energy. So what are your thoughts on that, David? Yes, uh, and that's a great question from Twitter. Um, I mean, clearly, as Pete mentioned, we're dealing with a ecosystem, an, an energy ecosystem that is uh, not monolithic in nature, not simple in nature. And I think if you'd asked people 10 years ago about what was going on with energy trends, energy was seen as increasingly scarce. There was talk about what was called peak oil at the time. Uh, there was concerns about that. And clearly here we are now 10 years later, where through a variety of methods, um, it does seem right right now for North America, we've been able to address some of our energy consumption needs uh, that's brought down the price. The question is, how long term is that? Is that a five-year blip? Is that a 10-year blip before it goes up again? or we find other technologies. And as that question asked, as the price goes down in energy, there is less money or less incentive for other entering technologies to enter that are more expensive at the moment. Um, that said, I think there are still innovation opportunities. And sort of to circle back to what Pete was talking about, right now, it's pretty much a model where homes receive power from a source and they use it on demand. And if that gets disrupted, then you have disruption. You don't have power in your house. Most of us don't have backup generators, much less batteries of our own that is storing power. So if we lose power to that source, we can run on the battery. Uh, but we know through Tesla and other uh, companies that are looking into battery innovation, that storage capacity issue, it could very well be 10 to 15 years from now, homes are being outfitted both with batteries to store their own power that they're actually producing themselves whether it's through smart materials on the roof. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the future is actually some of our road materials may actually, when a car is not driving over them, may be collecting energy from the sun when a car is not driving over them. So you need to actually think about the future being completely different from a supply and demand where a central source has energy and it's sending it to your home. It may very well be your home, your car, 
are also energy producers and energy stores of themselves in the future. And then as Pete mentioned, how do we get them to exchange energy and power to where it's needed in this much more complex adaptive system? And, and if I can just comment, David, just um, if I can riff off of that comment, again, terms that we hear, resilience, flexibility, obviously sustainability with energy efficient renewable resources, that's the plan. That's the big picture. The devil is in the details, to David's point, whether it's a power wall with your Tesla being charged in your home, a solar panel on your neighbor's roof, how that's stored energy. And that's where a lot of the innovation for those on the call who are really in the weeds working on to create um, solar panels that can store energy that we can use later to deal with the supply demand challenges that Michael brought up. That's the beauty of what's happening in the R&D community is as we consume and use energy, uh, those that are frankly the consumers who don't really care if the lights um, and how they turn on, that's the infrastructure that we're building in our country that takes advantage of maybe one day, not just our nation state, but other nation states because of the R&D being done in parts of the country that have you know, poverty to deal with and sun 24 seven or you know, around the clock and how to capture and store the energy to be used at a later time. So let's, let's remember in this conversation, if nothing else, that there's no shortage of cool tech that's going to get us to where the Internet of Things makes sense. It's integration and energy security and energy storage that are really the tackled or the problems that we're tackling behind the scenes. And I think big shout out to all the academics and folks and, frankly, entrepreneurs in the garages around the world who are trying to solve these problems. Let me let me introduce a couple of other threads. So so again, I want to thank Singularity University for underwriting and participating in the preparation of these topics. And so let's suppose, so here's thread number one. Let's suppose that solar power costs fall to the point where energy is almost free. Does that eliminate energy policy challenges or does it just create new ones? And then Again, Gus Beckdash on Twitter comments, fossil fuel prices are very sensitive to demand. And so during the transition to renewables, prices will collapse. And so what are the impacts of that? And so I think the broader question then here from both of these threads is, as energy prices fall to zero, what happens? Do, the, do the, the policy issues simply go away, evaporate? What goes on? Maybe, David, you can hit on that one. I'll go quick, and then I'll let Pete take a... And I would say, um, I think it was Scott Adams that said, there's two ways to predict the future. One is through Ouija boards and uh, crystal balls, and the other one is through shooting facts through a computer, but in either case, a complete waste of time. Uh, these are predictions of the future that are simply extrapolating trends that may not be exactly what happens. So don't hold me 10 years from now when the future is not exactly as I predict. Oh, we're taking notes, David. You, I mean, we have our you know, little notebooks. <laughs> this is anyway. going to be on the Internet Archive forever. <laughs> exactly. Um, Anyways. Um, so I do think that, that we are seeing improvements in solar technologies such that prices are getting cheaper. It's getting more effective. I don't know if it'll get to zero per se, but it will get that we will start having more abundance of solar power. Um, that said, I do think if you look at past policy, uh, future past, present successes set yourselves up for future failures. For example, the good news is the U.S. rolled out the Internet to the world. That was great. The challenge is now we have cybersecurity threats. And so we should not 
be surprised if the success of reducing the limitations of solar power to the planet will create second and third order effects that we've not thought of. Uh, for example, maybe people can now start running server farms that allow them to do massive DDoS attacks and know now we have another issue. So that said, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try for that success. It just means recognize that humans are complex adaptive systems, but we do are complex adaptive systems. So there will be more challenges. Um, on the fossil fuel, I don't know if I get that fossil fuels are going to come crash completely in price. Um, I do think that there may be other things that will start to supplement fossil fuels, but let's recognize fossil fuels are also good for plastics, cosmetics, and other activities as well. So it may be that they're being used less to produce energy, but they may be used for other chemical activities and other structures that we need as humans. I do think there's going to be a challenge, though, because as, as mentioned, all of these things are subject to disruption, whether they're from a hurricane, an earthquake. Um, if you're in a city that is running solar power and it turns out that there is a massive earthquake that destroys all the solar power uh, panels themselves, how are you going to get power to that in the interim? If there's a war, if there's a strife, that too as well. So I think that gets to what Pete is talking about with resiliency, which is how can we have resiliency both from natural events with the grid, as well as from human-caused disruptions or intentional disruptions? Great. Yeah, um, I'll just chime in. Um, this discussion about if it goes to zero, um, I think it comes down to choice. Uh, I'm going to harp today on grid integration. Fossil fuels have been dominant, and my bet is they're going to be extremely dominant. Why? Mostly they're easier to transport and they're easier to store than alternative fuels today. They just are. And the innovation happening in the alternative you know, fuel markets, uh, price-wise alone, at any given time, to David's point, there's an act of God that occurs. You know, Matters like the weather, uh, incidents that we can't predict that just happen, the concept of having, oh my gosh, that's a uh, region of this country or the world that relies heavily on fossil fuel oh my gosh, today it's, well, how could we make sure that those lives aren't disrupted by having an integrated grid? So policies and incentives for companies to not make it a either or, regardless of the price, I think the option needs to be there. And I think, I think, I, I can tell you from my visits to several national labs, most notably the one up in uh, the West Virginia, Pittsburgh area, the North, uh, North, the National Energy Technology Lab, which does a ton, amazing amount of research and development in the fossil fuel space. Uh, hearing the stories of how those academics and researchers, when Fukushima happened, how they were reached out to and essentially uh, traveled to, J to Japan and understood how here's a country that was all in on nuclear power, but immediately something bad happens and an interest in fossil fuels, natural gas, hydraulic fracturing overnight becomes something that says, hey, Maybe we should be prepared for scenarios where we have a choice. And I think that's what it comes down to. So I'm going to leave it there versus getting mired in the fact that, hey, as a concurrent stream, policy, regulation, incentives, uh, there's a huge opportunity as we have more options out there for everybody. But for now, look, fossil fuels, they're available, transportable, and we can store them. Renewables, exciting, brings more opportunities for us. Maybe it makes you feel better about wind or solar or biomass or, or, or what have you, biofuels. But it's about options. And that's what we want, I think. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, alternative fuels not only make you feel better 
about uh, other sources of energy, but they're positioned to make you feel better about ourselves, which is, a, which is another, which is a psychological dimension of all this that I suppose is, is linked in some ways to, to the policy dimensions. And so it's not just in a matter of the attributes of fossil fuels being easy to transport, easy to store, but there's also this policy set of policy implications that have a significant impact as well, right? Yeah. Well, if I could just jump in for a second here, my, th- there's something interesting here as we're diving into the energy sector and back to David's point, And I think I couldn't agree. Um, I agree hundred percent. The energy sector, I would say is critical to the other 15, the energy water food nexus and they all happen to be three of our critical 16 infrastructures, that relationship opens up a whole other discussion from a policy standpoint, from a potential tariff standpoint, from a subsidy standpoint, as an opportunity for business to enter this market. So when we're talking about making changes and introducing alternative fuels, whether you feel good about using wind power as your supplier from a generation standpoint, uh, or how it impacts uh, the pump at the train when you're pumping gas into your car, you're using, you know, gasoline today uh, or thereabouts on hybrid vehicle. It's, it, it can get really complex on the policy regulatory side, but we're at a point where we don't want that to stifle the innovation because as David said, the opportunity while introducing vulnerabilities, and we haven't gotten to cybersecurity and energy security yet, because when you talk IOT, we have to get to that point. Let's just accept the fact that there'll be a natural, I don't know if it's tension, but a necessity for regulatory and standards bodies to do what they need to do because we're seeing this integration, not just of ping power pipe, but of sectors themselves, which each have their own stovepiped or cylinder of excellence view of the world. So, so David, we don't want innovate, we don't want public policy to stifle innovation. Uh, I suspect that's a, that's a topic near and dear to your heart. So darn all those government people and why do we have them is what you're saying. Uh, (laughs) I think, I mean, as Pete is a wonderful example, and I hope I try to embody too, there are plenty of positive change agents that are trying to carry the balance of thinking about the good of the many, the nation, uh, what happens to those that lose power, lose energy, uh, that multiple people are trying to weigh these different calculus demands. And yes, we definitely want transformation and innovation as well, but there's also the dimensions of security, safety. And I think that to me gets to why does the public service exist? I mean, public service in my mind exists to help address those things that we can't do by ourselves individually. Now there's two interesting possible futures to consider. One is that what we've seen on the information space that things are increasingly getting to levels of one personalization of one. Now that's on the information space, not the energy space, but it could be in the next 10 to 15 years that the technologies allow you to produce your own energy, at least to be carbon neutral or energy neutral when there's not a disruption that, that when there is a disruption or when there's an energy earthquake or something like that, you do have to pull from another source that may be an empowering mode that says we're going to sort of distribute and decentralize energy production to give you more choice, as Pete mentioned. Now, the other thing, though, is we've been talking about energy sources, but there's another side of this whole conversation, which is that of energy efficiency. We might not necessarily dramatically transform the different sources that we're actually pulling from, but if we can get our electronic devices that consume power to be more energy efficient, that 
will be transformative of itself as well. And the good news is, as microprocessors get smaller and smaller, they do get more and more efficient. Now, the downside is there's also more and more of them, so it's sort of a net balance. But if we can have more focus on being energy efficiency, that might be an easier thing to tackle than trying to address sources per se. Michael, can I can I comment on that? Or again, build off of, uh, of David there. Um, I think that's a great segue as we accept there's policy and regulatory matters and there's technology. But you mentioned early on, Michael, about exponentially growing technologies, i.e. artificial intelligence, material science, robotics, and the like. That is what I believe David just eloquently teed up. And that is, if we can be more efficient and predictive and prescriptive in the management of energy, I don't care what source it is, right? But predictive algorithms to balance grids, negotiate self-healing networks, these are the terms a lot of the folks in the information sharing analysis centers that, that I have the fortune of ta talking with now and again, whether it's in case of a bug or a hack or the consumption and production figures, that's the beauty, like a self-driving car, or an autonomous vehicle is going to be available to us as not so much as consumers, but the introduction of relying on technology to have 24-7 monitoring of this balance that's needed so that we can have energy on demand, that we can drive autonomous vehicles, that we don't worry about three days of no power after a snowfall. That's, again, maybe 10, 15, not, maybe not even that long. That's a very exciting discussion if we move from critical infrastructure to integration is important. Yes, policies and standards and regulatory bodies have to do their job. But the exciting part of having real-time 24-7 information to manage these you know, hundreds of billions of devices that, that David pointed out, not just in the internet of things to those consumers listening, but the industrial internet of things to use SCADA operators, you industrial control system operators. So you have information at your fingertips, which is what we really hope to be monitoring more so real time anywhere and know that it's secure because we haven't touched on it. And hopefully soon here, the concept around information sharing, collaboration on data with data to information safeguarding which is how do we protect those information assets? That's a healthy discussion, which I think reach or goes or takes us into the cybersecurity discussions. Yeah, and, and actually we have uh, a couple of questions from Twitter, several that I'd like to briefly uh, get to. Uh, so on this subject of collaboration, Sal Rasa is asking, can you point to successful examples of public-private collaboration in energy. Uh, either one of you? I'll jump on one and then I'll let Pete go. But the one that I sort of think is- And I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm gonna ask you guys to, uh, to keep these answers relatively short because we have a lot to cover and we have only a little bit of time. Sure, I'll keep it really short. The example I would say is Energy Star, um, which was a effort to try and make it more visible to consumers, the energy consumption of their technology device or their washer or dryer. And by providing that visibility and how much you would spend extra if it was less efficient, it turned out that it was a market-driven approach that actually allowed basically consumers themselves to make the choice that drove to more efficient, effective technologies. And so that would be the one I'd raise. Yes. And, and quickly, I, I have to give a shout out to my national laboratory colleagues yet again. The Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, also known as LSSST, or I'm sorry, LSST, this is the telescope that's going to give us pictures of the universe uh, in the future. And, and if you just read about it, it is an amazing public-private partnership, universities, academics, 
federal government industry to build and mount this telescope to take pictures that, of the universe and discover things and, and that we can then use to cure a lot of these diseases and, and continue the R&D in our country. So LSST represents a way of collaborating internationally but also protecting a lot of that collection and the infrastructure ping power pipe behind sharing that data globally. And you said, and uh, large synoptic, and what was the third word? Yes, large synoptic survey telescope, LSST. It's an amazing use case that on the scientific side will not only, I believe, um, help us solve a lot of these challenges today, but it really represents what I think the question that our, um, our, our, our colleague there asked, which is, are we really collaborating internationally? And the answer is absolutely. And it's also got a really interesting name. Large. It's a, <laughs> I like to say LSST. It's a little cooler and quicker, but you know, it's another acronym. And, and David and I both know from the world of government, that's what we live in. So yes, it's our secret vocabulary. You're now queued in, Michael. You are now a LSST badge holder. Yes. I love it. I love it. Um, and who would have thought? Okay. We have another question. Uh, this one is from somebody on uh, who's watching on the live stream platform. And this is Doug Natal. And he's asking, uh, will we get to the point where uh, energy is moved, shared, and stored where it is needed? And will big data help make those decisions through machine learning? So to Mr. Natal, Absolutely. Uh, I think the uh, reference earlier to artificial intelligence uh, is, is significant. And, you, and the question is brilliant. Uh, again, working at the Department of Energy, the term big data in government means something to each agency. I like to brag that at Energy, we really do big data. When you talk about the supercompute and high-performance computing platforms, taking nothing away from my colleagues in the other agencies. But big data and the analysis necessary to extract value from data, which is essentially information, is, is critical to the future as we move into this modernized smart infrastructure grid. And big data analysis today, which is, is being leveraged in the national labs, big data doesn't really mean something new to the national lab community, R&D community, I should refer to. But yes, short answer, big data analytics teamed with critical infrastructure needs and requirements and wants. And then the third leg of that stool being, how do you cyber protect that while at the, at, you know, the goal being innovation is critical. You can't have one without the other. So it's significant, but yes, the analysis and the innovation to allow human to machine interfaces do that type of dialogue, if you will, or conduct that dialogue so that we can have answers immediately, instantaneously, will drive the innovation in our country in this space. And just to do a real quick add to that, and I'll do real short because I know we're short on time, Michael. Um, everything Pete said with the recognition that in some respects, what the internet is allowing to happen, what the consumerization of technology is allowing to happen is for us to move to decentralized forms of energy production and of consumption. And that model actually we saw back in the 1800s. So in some respects, we're turning like it's the 1800s all over again. Okay, moving on quickly, and I apologize. Uh, I really like to take the questions from Twitter folks that are watching. And Andrew, and I'm going to probably pronounce his name wrong. Andrew Zagorognyuk. Maybe I got it right. Andrew works for a drilling rig manufacturing company. And 
he's wondering what about the future of fossil and of, of oil and natural gas industries in the next 10 years? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, and again, not to hopefully not sound redundant. I, I think just as we're doing technological R&D related to alternative fuels, there is, as I mentioned, at the National Energy Technology Lab in Pittsburgh and West Virginia, constant research being into drilling, hydraulic fracturing. Uh, you go to the Idaho National Lab, you're, they're, they're, they're looking at new ways to uh, uh, understand nuclear energy. Oak Ridge National Lab is building on next generation uh, fission nuclear platforms. There is no doubt, and that's the beauty of these 17 amazing crown jewels in this country alone that are internationally collaborating with other uh, uh, state, nation states. You just need to check out and understand that there is a number of dollars or investment monies being placed into these institutions to drive innovation towards this integration of, of the grid. Everybody sees the smart grid, smart meaning connected 24-7. And there is not one particular, the National Renewable Energy Lab, for example, is focused on a lot of alternative fuels. But I, I, I hope that that paints a picture because, again, we can go down just the fossil uh, uh, channel, but know that the R&D in this country, where give or take a couple billion, $150 billion or so are invested in all of this R&D so that we can get to the smart, secure infrastructure that will provide energy on demand in the future. Now, this issue of security that you had raised earlier, Pete, maybe we need to talk about that. <laughs> and how much time do we have, Michael? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, cliff, yeah the Cliff's Notes. Um, let me tee it up, David, if you're cool with that, and then, yeah. then you go ahead and riff off. I think that uh, it's, for those in the, this is very, impo this is very uh, important and a great, great segue. Energy security, cyber physical systems, these are terms that are used in the lexicon of the uh, community that, that I've been running in over the last couple of years, but it can be applied to any of the critical infrastructure for, uh, businesses today and in the future. But as David introduced at the outset, if you get the internet of things, you get smart grid, you understand it. You wanna know that your privacy and your civil liberties are protected. What's kind of exciting and scary, though, when you talk about cybersecurity as it relates to the energy sector, is the amount of data that today is transmitting between SCADA platforms, between substations, between transmission. So for those of you who want to, real quick, energy has essentially three phases, generation, transmission, and distribution to your home, geographically dispersed. It's no different than a network. This is the arguably most compelling network in the world, our country's power grid, and it's a century old. So the same cyber concerns that we have today as we contemplate the cloud, as we think about leveraging networks and networks, that's where the opportunity to, to move from a very somewhat firewalled off, air-gapped environment we have today, which is very available, but to have that grid of the future, to have that connectivity 24-7, to have all the amenities of a smarter infrastructure, and I'll let David kick, off, kick it off now here, we have the same concerns we should about how do we information safeguard or safeguard the information needed to transport around 
at any given time. And that's where you get into the artificial intelligence. It's the same challenge, social engineering, insider threat, make sure the data is, you know, uh, deep packet inspections are in play. You've got encryption algorithms you have to think about. So just think of this as cyber to the power grid is very similar to cyber to our business networks, the network in your home, but at a larger scale. And I'll just add real quick to that and say, Pete is exactly right, that all the concerns we have with internet cybersecurity and internet privacy and civil liberties, that's also present on energy consumption. You can learn a lot about a person or when they're home and not home based on their energy consumptions. And so we need to be cautious about what's done with that data because that might give you information. If, if the power levels are low, they may not be home and that might make them a target to go rob the house. And so there are huge ramifications about what humans can do with this, how they can disrupt it. And then there's two additional layers that make um, the energy grid even more challenging to deal with, because not only is it the information associated with this, it is the fact that you can actually create real world, what I would call physical or kinetic effects by disrupting these systems. And that can actually end up killing people, that can end up causing destruction to property. And that's something that we don't necessarily always see in cybersecurity, although we've recently seen ransomware hacks that are actually affecting hospital systems. And so there's that dimension. And then finally, there's the dimension that information itself can be encoded in the energy itself. Now, this is still in the realm of research and development, but there are actual experiments in place that are trying to diver, deliver both power and internet over the same current, which raises interesting questions because there are cases where, you know, hopefully most of us know that if we go to a place that's not familiar to us, we don't know if we can trust the network, you may not want to plug in your most valuable data to that network because you don't know what's going to happen. But if in the future you're getting your internet provided over your power, are you at risk because now you've plugged in your system to get power, but you're now also connected to the internet? And so these are things that obviously have to be addressed through research and development, and they shouldn't scare us into not addressing the future. We should embrace the future, but we should do so knowing that there are going to be challenges that need to be solved. We're clearly not going to solve these, pro these uh, problems today. But in our last couple of minutes, I'll just ask each of you for your final thoughts or your kind of summary thoughts on what are the key challenges or the key, um, the, the key conflicting issues that we face in regards to energy. So Pete, maybe we'll start with you. What are the kind of conflicting issues that we face right now? Why, what makes this stuff so hard? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's hard. I think it's, um, it's those stakeholders, whether you're a C-level executive for a utility, if you're president of a country, if you're the owner and operator of a substation, if you're a country that doesn't have power today, people are still cooking on fires and, and, and you know, uh, makeshift stoves. Um, technology is key to the global energy future, no doubt. Absolutely, it'll be the underlying ping power pipe. Um, I think that uh, the energy source discussion um, can be mired in one better than the other. And that's, again, something that I, I, I find personally, having worked at the Department of Energy for as long as I did and, and being exposed to that, that can really stifle a discussion 
to accelerate the transfer of a lot of the technology that is being developed in our national labs, for example. I think whether you're in Asia or in India, Indonesia, South Africa, we didn't talk about globally where certain parts of this world are, are advancing the implementation of some of this alternative fuel energy uh, that we could learn from. And that's where collaboration, just how are you doing it in Africa? How are you doing it in China? What's different in India today when it comes to how the integration in your country is leveraging a, a power source? Because the big picture is we want to have a supply-demand ecosystem or a super grid is what I've read about as of late um, that can be uh, there for everyone. Because this is where putting on my human hat, human being, you know, caring about the greater good, we can't operate in silos. And I think that's still where we are. Regionally, uh, internationally, there's no shortage of people trying to discover uh, opportunities for investment. But it's a sad state when when we when there is something that's been invented is sitting on a shelf in a lab somewhere in this world and we get mired in the uh legalities and policies of licensing that or allowing it to be released to the public so that that greater good is realized so i, I want to finish with yes cyber threats are important extreme weather risks um supply demand issues technology is not the problem policy is a necessary thing that has to happen it's when will that community, that global community of, of true influencers and folks who can say, look, this, this affects all of us and all ends of the earth. And coming together and saying we have to build a smarter grid for our world, will we see, I think, uh, a very bipartisan discussion evolve. Fantastic. And it looks like, David Bragg, you're going to get the last word. And so if you want to summarize all of energy policy technology invest and investment in in sort of a tweet sized bite now's your now's your chance if you ever ever wanted to do that now's the time i appreciate you dropping the mic on me mike uh so all right so i would say what makes the united states great is we are a plurality and we can do great things when we get what's being done in the private sector in alignment with what's being done in the public sector with nonprofits and with individuals but that's the big challenge is it takes a compelling narrative and a working towards shared goals to get everything in alignment. And it's okay if they're not in alignment. And right now they're not in alignment, which gets to what Pete is saying. That's the hardest part is many people are going in different directions. Sometimes there's bickering. That is a challenge. Now, it would be easier if in some respects we were an autocracy and some nations are, and they're able to have basically the public sector and the private sector in lockstep because they are that. I don't think that's what we want to become as the United States, but that is our challenge in this exponential era is how do we remain a plurality that allows the private sector to be independent and do what it wants, public sector, individuals and nonprofits, how do we move forward together in that challenging era? And so I hope that maybe we can find that compelling narrative and those shared goals that, as Pete mentioned, can be a bipartisan conversation and can be a conversation that's across borders. And I'll end with one sort of thing to think about the future Ten years ago, if you had talked about delivering power over Wi-Fi or over the air, people had said that's not possible. You know, microwaves, you're going to nuke somebody. It's not going to be good. We're beginning to see early signs that as technology gets small enough, and we're talking at nanoscale, you can deliver power over the air over some distances. And so I'm hopeful that maybe 10 to 15 years from now, we'll be talking about how quaint it was that we had plugs in our home. Maybe it's a little bit ambitious to say that. But I think that's what we need to think about is the world is going to be changing before we know it. The question is, 
whether we as a country are getting our private sector, our public sector, and our nonprofits doing it together, or we are house divided. All right. What an amazing discussion on exponential energy. We have been talking with David Bray and Pete Saronis, and you have been watching episode number 242 of CXO Talk. Thank you so much to Singularity University for underwriting this episode, and tune in next week. Go to cxotalk.com, and you can see our upcoming episodes. Thanks so much, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you.